you know, there's no organization, no person cannot want zero fatality or zero harm. There's a moral imperative. You have to go for it. You have to state that and you have to uh, try to achieve that. The concept of a near miss is, to me, is almost the same as an accident. Uh, it's a rare event, and it's also too late. It's happened. It just didn't have the final confluence at that time to cause the failure in physical terms. So to me, it's past information as well. The quickest way to get you killed on the shuttle is to not follow the standard operating procedure. And so the second quickest way to get you killed is to always follow the standard operating procedure. Today I speak to Corey Pitzer. Corey Pitzer worked in the resources industry for 10 years as a senior executive for BHP Billiton, then founded SafeMap International in 1994. He became a leading safety and leadership consultant in Australia before moving to Vancouver, where he is now based. And there he leads a team of SafeMap partners globally. Pitzer consults with major companies globally. He is a member of ASSE's international chapter and was named ASSE's 2013 Mining Practice Speciality Safety Professional of the Year. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Today I speak to Cory Pitzer, who is the CEO of SafeMap International, consulting in advanced safety concepts. Hello, Cory. How are you doing? Hello, Petru. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, it's great to have you in the studio. So what I'd like to start off with is more about where you've come from. So tell me about yourself. Where did you grow up and what was your family like? I was born and raised on a farm in northern, it used to be northern Transvaal then, way back in South Africa. In 1956, I was born and grew up on this farm till I was about seven, eight years old, and then we moved to the, one of the most advanced cities in the world, Brackpan, on the East Rand, and uh, then I went to school there and to university. But um, my, uh, my family life was a normal, very well-balanced, hard-working father and hard-working mother and two brothers, two sisters. So was your family at all focused on safety? know anything like that so where does this interest in safety and looking after people come from they were not my father was an engineer my mother was a, a housewife and uh, there was no history of safety safety management or any of those things my father was a production manager for a formica i think it's a company's called at the, that stage and um, and i had never had any interest in it more personally you know, so it developed later on in my in my career so were you very protective over your friends? No, no, I was, uh, I was actually uh, bullied 
because of my color of my red hair. So uh, there was no protection at all. I had to fight for for survival, I think, me and my brother. Okay. So did you look after your brother or did he look after you? Oh, we both, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm. I see. So when you uh, finished school, what did you decide to study? I first went to university to do medical, become a medical doctor, which was like my dad's dream. I got accepted by University of Pretoria at the time and very quickly realized that uh, there is absolutely no interest in this subject, you know, so it was all about bones and the human body and, and I wasn't that way inclined at all. So I switched very quickly into psychology, which was really my interest. And what made you choose psychology? I've always been interested in, in psychology, the psychology of humans, uh, child psychology was probably a, a big focus with developmental psychology. I love to see how children develop and uh, things like that. But it never became a career choice uh, because I, I studied industrial psychology. Actually, I have no idea why, why I went that way. It was just an interesting field. And uh, so I, I studied honors and masters in that field. And then what happened? Well, then I went to the military after studies. So I first had to do two years of military training at the time when it was a conscription service here. And actually, I had a really good time. It was quite a life-changing event for me in the sense of uh, suddenly I had focus, suddenly I had discipline. And so the military played a key role in the aftermath of my career in safety because the way that the military manage risk is an absolute example, I guess, is the right example of how it could be and should be done. At this point, I was still not interested in, in safety because I was not qualified as a psychologist. I uh, found a job as a human resource manager in a platinum mine in South Africa. It was uh, Impala Platinum at the time. And that's where I started to develop a focus in safety. When did you re actually realize that safety was going to be your life? I think it was an event that caused that. As the human resource manager, I had to go and give the news of the death on the mine, a fatal accident on the mine, to the family. And uh, the manager of this mine sent me to go and do it. He didn't want to do it himself. And um, it was quite a difficult situation to handle. You know, I was like, I think I was 24, 25 years old. I was never trained for a situation like that. And that probably led to the second event, because a few weeks later, there was another fatal accident. And the manager called me in again and said, you have to do this again. And I said to him, I will, but I think you should be there. Because the family asked me, previous time, why were you not there to give the news yourself? And I convinced him to go with me. I think that was a life-changing event for both of us in the sense of we gave the news to the mother, two little girls, six, seven years old. I think it was an experience that uh, we both suddenly realized there's something much more to life than just you know, managing a mind for him and for me. And uh, I watched how the mother try to explain to these two little girls, they were twins, try to explain to them that their father died in the accident and they couldn't understand it. As they walked out of the room, because the mother said to them to go outside and play because she didn't know how to handle the situation anymore. And they walked out of this little room and they wouldn't look at us. They just walked straight past us into the backyard. And as we, me and this manager walked out, he stopped me and before we got in the car and he said to me, I'll never do this again. And I thought, you know, he's like just uncomfortable. 
And I was upset with him at the time. But he said to me, no, we're going to stop killing people on my mind. Because that lady and those two little girls did not deserve today. And that changed him dramatically. He became a very inspirational leader. And uh, he pulled me out of HR and put me into safety. And I was working for Gencourt at the time. And, and that started my career in safety. And it just went from there. You mentioned a very interesting thing about you couldn't understand to them uh, why this happened. So did that sort of spark a lifelong journey or to understand why people get killed at work? Yes, I've spent some time working on the ground as when I started on this mine because that was part of the training program you had to go through. You had to uh, do these basic occupations in the mine. But it was an incredible experience because I just came out of the military and where there was, you know, we were in a war at the time. So you, you started to understand risk. And I think that was an exploration of mine for the rest of my life in terms of understanding human risk-taking behavior. I'm a bit of a risk-taker myself. I like fast cars and fast motorcycles and skydiving and, and all these risky activities. I learned a lot during my engagement with these risky activities about safety, how to do it smartly, how to take risks safely if you can do that. You know, in terms of my career, we always had a very different approach to safety. At an early stage of my consulting, I worked for, for this company for 10 years, and um, I think what got me into consulting was they pushed me out, out of safety into a role of being trained to become the human resource director for the company. So I was like targeted now to take over that role one day. And I had to go and work for one of the board's directors. And I hated this because this was corporate politics. And I just realized I want to do my own thing and I want to do it in safety. And that's when I started SafeMap. I resigned. So I gave up a significant career in order to start my business with nothing. And that's when my whole journey on safety started with a different angle on it. You said a very interesting thing there around people who do risky things. Uh, myself as well, I do motorbiking and I do paragliding and that sort of stuff. And I think through doing those types of activities, you learn to take safety seriously. So you learn how to do those things. You, you still want to do them, but you do them in such a way that it's responsible. And I think it can be similar for any a company that does risky behavior type work as well, is to understand the risk that you're going to be facing and to then just do it in such a way that it's responsible and safe. Absolutely. I, you know, I was intrigued when I met you the first time that you have a motorcycle and you're in the safety field too. And, so, and that resonated with me too in the sense that you understand much better how to be safe if you are able to understand how to take risks. And there's absolutely an answer in that in terms of, as you say, in terms of organizations. High-risk organizations generally have an approach of pulling away from risk, you know, eliminate risk, engineer risk out, or however we apply the hierarchy of risk control. But there's a very serious element missing there, and that is the human being as a risk control factor. Human beings are the smartest in terms of handling risk. Only humans can deal with risk dynamically, respond to changing risk. And we're taking that very powerful factor out of the business by trying to cocoon the worker or provide uh, procedures and let the worker only follow certain procedures. 
and we, we're starting to dumb them down. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, something that's happening. You've been working in this field for quite a long time. If I have to add it up now, how much is that? 30 years. 30 years. And you must have seen major changes in the way that people think about safety and controlling risks. So what are the sort of major changes that you've seen? Well, when I started my business, I was a psychologist and I was more trained in, in cognitive psychology. So it's more the European models of psychology. And uh, when we started our business, we developed this concept called risk competence, exactly what we're talking just about now. Then I started seeing the growth of behavioral safety. Now, behavioral safety stems from behavioral psychology, which came out of the United States. And I always had a very critical view of that kind of angle on safety because it's very limited, it's very superficial. It focuses on human behavior only and doesn't want to understand the cognitions and motivations and attitudes of human beings. That's not what they're interested in, they're purely on the observable. Then I saw this growth happening in safety and it was huge and it lasted for 20, 25 years. And in the more recent times, probably the last 10 years, I'd say, you'd see a kind of a different approach evolving in safety. And that is more towards what we always profess to be the right way, if I can put it like that. And that's more based on the concepts of resilience engineering, or termis, resilience engineering. And uh, it's probably originated in Sweden by uh, Professor Erik Holnagel. You know, when I started reading his work, it was really immediately connected to that because it's this proactive, progressive thinking in safety. And so behavioral safety is still very strong, very powerful. Now, before behavioral safety, there was a strong focus on safety management systems, audit systems. And that was in the mining industry in South Africa, probably more advanced than anywhere else in the world at the time, 70s and 80s. Then came behavioral safety. And that started to take over a focus in, in safety. So where safety is going now, is that's a whole different discussion, but it's certainly moving away from reactive focus of safety that we have basically in uh, in this field at the moment. So let's talk a little bit about mine safety. Many mining companies have slogans like zero fatalities or zero harm and so forth. Is that what they really should be focusing on? Well, if we can go back to that uh, manager when him him and I stood at this gate of this family and he said, "We're going to stop killing people on my mine," he actually said zero fatalities. So that concept, you know, there's no organization, no person cannot want zero fatalities or zero harm. It is a moral imperative. You have to go for it. You have to state that and you have to uh, try to achieve that. And as a concept, it's probably the single most powerful change initiative in safety over decades now was this, yes, we're going for zero. It had changed the world of safety, changed the thinking in safety dramatically and drove down accident uh, rates and things like that. So that's the one side of it. You have no other choice. It's a moral imperative. But as organizations started to embed this in the organization, it started driving the wrong behaviors. It started driving a number. And safety became very much the focus of the safety department and where they have their KPIs, and that KPI has got to look good. It has to be directed to zero all the time. As a result of that, you had some very, very negative behaviors that started to evolve in organizations. And those negative behaviors are the suppression of information, 
the fudging of data, the fudging of accidents, or the arguments, is this really an accident? That's one side of it. The other side of it is that the workers, having been rewarded for not having accidents, for instance, because that was the next step to attach rewards to it, and obviously what workers were doing is they're going to give you what you want because they also want the rewards. So there is still today a strong tendency for workers to try and avoid reporting as much as they possibly can, which brings about an improvement in safety numbers, but that's all false. So this is the downside of the zero focus. And unfortunately, it's part of business. I'm not too sure we'll ever get it out. We're trying to propagate a concept that we term as beyond zero. What are you talking about? It's not an engineering concept. But when you talk about beyond zero, we talk about it in the sense of you're thinking into risk exposures, that this is the next level of safety focus in an organization where you don't measure, or if I can put it like this, where the measurement of safety is not necessarily an indication of the level of safety that's beyond that now. So you once told me about this concept of fake safety. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, fake safety is very much connected to this uh, whole idea of numbers and, and managing numbers in business. But there's also a lot of activity in the safety field. It's uh, the field of quality management in the 80s and 90s. It was a huge business on the industry of its own. It had its own gurus, its own methods and everything, and, and Deming was the father of that. But it soon became life of its own. And at this point in time, quality management, the quality movement, if I can call it like that, has disappeared. There is no such thing anymore because its quality is integrated into the production process of organizations. They don't need these quality control systems at the back end of the business anymore. Now, safety is subject to that same kind of movement, cult-like appearance as what the quality movement was. So there's a lot of initiatives and uh, programs and very much uh, flavor of the month stuff. And it's much driven by consultants, the people that you know I am. And uh, there's very little work that I think that goes into the heart and soul of the organization, driving safety into the production processes, into the planning processes of the organization, into the operating model of that organization. It's always an add-on. And that's what I call fake safety. Because it looks good, it looks busy, makes a lot of noise in the organization. People are happy to see it happen. And they're even connected to safety improvements if that happens. But it's not necessarily connected. That's fake. But it looks good. feels uh, good. Yeah, the definition you gave me is that fake safety is when managers pretend that they're serious about safety and the employees pretend to believe them. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> that stuck with me when you told me that. I was interested to read a paper you wrote called The New Era of Resilience Engineering, where you describe safety's seven deadly delusions and realities. I'd love to explore these with you. So when you use the term resilience engineering, what do you mean by that? Well, it's basically just using the term that was created by Eric Holnagel. That's the official term for this new thinking in safety. And Resilience goes back to what I said earlier on. In the engineering side of it is referring to the engineering it into the process of the organization, the production process. So it's engineering it, making it happen that way. Resilience is quite a concept, you know, it's almost like a philosophical concept, but it is where the organization develops the capability to respond to risk 
and to become strengthened to resist and handle risk in, in its operations and become stronger. Actually, there is a concept that goes a little bit further than that, but it's more a concept coming out of economics, and it's written, the book is called Anti-Fragility, and anti-fragility means it's the opposite of fragile. You become stronger from adversity, not just a capability to withstand it, but you actually grow from it. Now, that's the kind of concept that I'd like to see coming into safety, that uh, we not only do stand the adversities that we have, accidents and so on, but we, as an organization, we strengthen ourselves and to be able to do the next step. So there's one of the, if you think about traditional risk management systems that are put into place, one of the sort of controls to put into place is to engineer the risk out of the specific task that you're doing. Do you think it's even possible, or should we rather look at that risk and just be very aware of it all of the time? Yeah, I think that's, the, that's what I mentioned earlier on in this discussion, is the, the absence of the human uh, capability in the whole process, the human control mechanism. And we have this term, humans are the strongest link in the safety chain. And of course, engineering, technology, we can do an incredible amount of safe making through that. In that process, and, and that was one of the aspects I, I raised in that paper, in that process of making things so safe through technology, human beings don't necessarily cope with that new safety in the right way. And uh, if you have a look at how the whole traffic engineering, the pedestrian, pedestrians are protected, like in the city where I live, Vancouver, pedestrians have right of way in any circumstance, you can cross a road in Vancouver and cars will stop for you. You don't have to do it at a, at a pedestrian crossing. You can just start walking and it'll stop for you. That has had a result of pedestrians just walking. And their normal response mechanisms of looking, being aware of cars is reduced. And I find that when I come from Canada to here, I suddenly have to switch mode because the cars here won't, won't stop for you. So you have to now suddenly become more, more aware. And that's that missing part in that engineering process. In your paper, you talk about the seven deadly delusions when you're looking at safety culture. And one of the things you raise here is around causation. And if you think about traditional risk management, people like to speak about things like the domino effect or the holes of the Swiss cheese line up so that this specific accident has happened. So what do you think about all of this? Well, that's exactly... Uh one of the deeper concerns I have about our models in safety. Safety is, a, is probably one of the most complex processes in organization, but it's very much an engineering approach, a mechanical approach, where if something goes wrong, we're looking for the causes, the holes in the Swiss cheese, and we're looking backwards, looking at all the linear causation of it. And it all makes sense when you add it all up. But an accident is a very complex event. And it has not got only one singular causation, it has got multiple causation. It is a complex interaction of situations randomly happening as well that created this unique circumstance for a mishap to happen, you can put it like that. And yet when we analyze it and looking backwards, we can find one single line very easily. Now that gives us the impression that safety is a simple process. All we have to do is find those causes, come to the root cause, and then eliminate the root cause and things will go better. We've done that successfully for many years. But as organizations grow and mature and become far more complex than what they were 60, 70 years ago, those models don't apply anymore. They simply don't explain accidents anymore. 
And so to the point where I've made the statement the other day, there are no root causes anymore. They are all embedded in the organization. There are many root causes. They're all multiple and they interact at the same time. And so therefore our analytical tools is not linked to the realities of what we have, the chaotic situation, not a complex situation that we have to deal with today. So what role do you think, because it sounds to me as you're talking about systems thinking and how things come together to cause a specific incident or accident, so what role do you think technology is going to play in the future for us to try and analyze these complex systems? I'm talking about things like big data and artificial intelligence and all of those. You know, Can we use those tools in the future to try and predict where our weak spots in an organization is? That's a very... Very complex question. I think as we grow our capabilities, especially in big data analysis, there will be some vast improvements in our capabilities. The problem is not so much the analysis of the data, it's the sourcing of the data and how much time you can productively spend on collecting data in any organization that's got tight margins. So if we have the capability to analyze it, I'm not sure we're going to you know, have that capability to source it that easily. And what is the correct data to be sourcing? Well, that's more upstream in the organization. That's more about, you know, where the systems operate in the organization, where the culture operates in the organization. And that's one of the fields we specialize in is culture analysis. There's some people who say, you know, you can't really measure a culture, but we're very confident that you actually can. And there's a high level of predictability that you can find in those analysis and to be able to identify your weak spots, not necessarily predictive in terms of events and so on, but to identify your exposure, where you're more or less exposed in terms of cultural strengths, maturity, alignment, or whatever you actually measure there, and more proactively manage that. Now, another one of your seven deadly sins is compliance. So one of the quotes you give there is that James Reason said that following safety procedures has killed people in the past. So are we too reliant sometimes on, or we think we're overconfident that the rules are going to protect us in certain situations, and how do we overcome that? You also use a quote from another guy, was a Joe Bobko, was his name, was a shuttle pilot, who said that the quickest way to get you killed on the shuttle is to not follow the standard operating procedure. And so the second quickest way to get you killed is to always follow the standard operating procedure. So there is not a case to be made for rule breaking here, but more and more the organization is depending on the existence of rules and regulations and standard operating procedures in the organization and humans blindly, follow, and that's what reason James Reason was actually referring to there, that people can blindly follow rules and as we become more and more comfortable with all these engineered systems around us and processes around us, we think less and less about the risks that we are dealing with. And in an ever-increasing world, ever-increasing complexity, those rules and regulations are going to be less and less effective for us. Therefore, coming back to the point, we have to get the human being smarter, more prominent in the safety process in order to deal with those complexities. Now that almost sounds like we'll have to completely change our approach to how we train people. So that people understand that the rules are important, but in certain situations it's good to use your own common sense. And I don't know if you can train somebody when to use their own common sense or if it's just a type of culture that you instill in an organization. What do you think? I think it's both. I don't think you can train people the various situations in which they have to do because that 
you know, belies the whole focus of it. It lies in technical competence of people for their jobs, and it lies in understanding the risks that they deal with in the day-to-day basis. And therefore, to have our training processes such that they're much more experiential, challenging, open-ended, so that people can discover what needs to be done in certain situations themselves. Because it's not always the same, of course. It's a highly variable environment. So we want to teach them skills, train them skills that in which they can act differently and use their own understanding of their risks in their environment better. So this whole concept about experiential learning is very interesting to me. Firstly, because we can put people in situations where they have to think for themselves and teach them when to use their common sense. And secondly, it's around how do we use simulations for people to get used to being placed in a situation where uh, they have to decide for themselves what they're going to be doing. When you simulate, for instance, events, accidents and um, failures, that's a learning process for people to go through. That specific failure that they've been simulated to and that they're now learning from will not necessarily happen in exactly that same way because no two events happen in exactly the same way. But in that process, they develop skills to start judging, responding in different ways and therefore developing that resilience, which is part of that term. So... How good are past safety events at helping us be prepared for future safety incidents? It used to be very good because there were a lot of events, you know, in the 60s and 70s, a lot of accidents, and we can learn from those and start putting constraints or procedures or engineering into place to prevent the next one. But as businesses have become more complex, faster-paced, I think the the value of an accident analysis has been vastly reduced. We spend an inordinate amount of time, and we have to, you know, sometimes uh, it's almost an obligation, but I'm not too sure we we learn so much anymore from events that already happened. Imagine we could use that same amount of time in an organization to search out new risks or new ways in which, say, fatal accidents can happen. That's far more productive and progressive in thinking and you have so much more value from it. That specific event that happened will never happen in that exact same way anyway, and they're very rare these days. So the opportunity to learn is extremely rare. But when they do happen, it consumes the organization in so many ways. People, resources, time. Spend that time on a more proactive focus on risk. So companies are very focused on analyzing near hits and high potential incidents and all of those and use the sector of something big that might happen in the future. And I know you don't actually believe that that's the case. So could you explain um, how we almost become complacent in our numbers and then that leads to all of a sudden a whole slew of accidents happening or fatalities? Yeah, I think the uh, the concept of a near miss is, to me, is almost the same as an accident. Uh, it's a rare event, and it's also too late. It's happened. It just didn't have the final confluence at the time to cause the failure in physical terms. So to me, it's past information as well. I'd like to use the term, and we started using this term very recently, uh, We call it, because it makes sense like that, and we call that the farmers. It is so far away from happening, but it's a risk exposure. And that tells you a lot more, and it comes back to this thing about where do we spend our time as an organization, searching out uh, risk exposures in the organization. 
And when you start doing that, when you actually start searching out these kind of exposures, you realize they are incredibly random. They change all the time. You go into an organization onto a mine site at one point, and you go around, you look for, say, serious risks. You find them. If you go there the next day or the three days later, you'll find different ones. And so any one of those could have resulted in a fatal accident. So you've got to be, have a system inside the organization. You have to have the process inside the organization to constantly look forward and constantly look dynamically forward. That's a key thing for me. We shouldn't have standard systems to capture risk with because risk is not like that. Yeah, I find in, in many organizations, our risk management systems are very administrative. They're like sort of checklists or paper-based ways in which we are preventing a risk. And how do we make it that our risk prevention systems are much more tangible, um, that there's more, it's more people-focused? I heard the other day an example of a technical service manager at a colliery who one of the things that they put in place was um, before the blast goes off, everybody on the operation has got a blast tag and the blast actually physically can't go off until everybody with the tag has moved out of the blast radius. And that's for me is a very physical, tangible control which everybody understands and it's not a checklist or administrative. So how do we move away from everything being paper-based to physical and tangible stuff? The origin of this is, of course, uh, of this very strong focus on procedures and paper-based checklists and so on. That's obviously aviation. And they've been extremely successful with it in the aviation industry. But there's huge differences between aviation and what we do. In aviation, you sit in a cockpit and there's a pilot, highly trained, cost millions of dollars to train them, sitting in an environment that's incredibly engineered. And also billions of dollars of went into the design of that. In that environment, Yes, I can see the value of checklist upon checklist because it's a complex environment. But we're totally dispersed from that. We have, let's say we have the same kind of idea of a pilot in the workplace. We've got thousands of pilots, small pilots, with little pieces of work that they have to do. If you put checklists into all of those little pilots, you're actually sitting with a vast bureaucracy. And people are so much more capable than following checklists. So, yes, if we can actually come up with more, like the, exactly the one the type of uh, system that you just mentioned there, that's in action, that's, that's dynamic, and it's a far more foolproof kind of system than a checklist would be, because checklists just create boredom, create human behavior that we actually don't want in the workplace. You know, where safety becomes a, a checked off at the end of the process or at the beginning of the process and not during the process. You end off the paper on resilience engineering around four key concepts almost. And it's all around knowing what to do, knowing what to look for, knowing what to expect, and know what has happened. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? If you have a look at how we traditionally look at safety, measured safety, is we look at what has happened. And we look at best at what is happening. So if you look at what has happened, that's our lagging indicators. What is happening is our leading indicator. But there is the next level of measurement that very few organizations get into. It goes back to this discussion we just had about risk exposures. I don't think one can quantify that and use that as KPIs because we'll just fall in the same trap. People will give us what we want and we will have this myopic view of safety. It's more about qualitative measurements qualitative processes that allows departments or that allows teams 
to look at their risks in a, in a dynamic way. You know, one of the examples that I developed here in South Africa, uh, maybe some 2004, I was consulting for a mining company here in South Africa. I was living in Australia at the time. And uh, we developed in-team risk identification process. And we called it the Masisa system, coach system. So one team member in a production crew would be getting task of doing of being an observer of risk that day and would do that activity. The next day, another team member does it. So we rotate throughout the team. And that became that proactive look at the risk all the time. And the identity, it's a very practical way of doing it. They understand their risks and they can talk to each other about it. It creates an openness about risk. I think that's a direction that a lot of other things can be done in safety as well. So for us to move into this new direction of being proactive and trying to anticipate our weak spots, do you think it's possible to change the culture of an organization? Very much so, but not necessarily easily. And it, it may be a, a visible slogan or it may be an invisible intent, but there's a clear picture in most people's minds. And if that is very strongly focused in your organization, if everybody shares and it's a progressive one, it has a huge impact on the culture. So in our work, we start with that, whatever it is, and we define it or assist with the, assist the teams, the management team to, to understand what it is that they, that they profess as their vision statement or the intent of the organization. And then we hate what they really want. And sometimes it's a matter of, you know, creating the right systems or the right processes about what they already stated before. But often it, it involves a change in that statement. And um, there's an organization in, um, in Australia, for instance, and they are our favorite client, you could say. And they had this, you know, the normal safety vision. They want to ensure that employees go to home in the same way they came to work. And, and that, that's actually a reactive statement too. So through these processes, they redefined their slogan in the organization is, we have the energy. They're an energy organization. And one of the things that we profess very strongly in our uh, approach is the readiness to respond to risk as the right definition, the correct definition of safety, as against the absence of accidents. We say if an organization focuses on the readiness to respond to risk, you are creating a lot of capabilities in your organization for all of those elements in there. And they then add it to their we have the energy dot, 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 we are ready. And that changed that organization's focus, approach to safety, and created a huge openness of people right bottom up in the organization to talk about safety, talk about the risks in the environment openly. It's quite amazing how you can change the culture with manipulation of the right factors in the business. Now, changing the culture of an organization is normally quite complex, and it's quite difficult, and it takes years. It doesn't, it's not something that can happen quickly. So I'm always interested to know how do we do it? So what steps do you take? So what is step one? What is step two? And how do we know once we've got to that place that we wanted to get to? Well, that step one is that change the definition of intent in the organization to what it should be. Step two is to create the capability and understanding at the executive levels in the organization because we find it so readily that organizations have the slogan or whatever they have and that there is no real common understanding and acceptance in the top team of the organization. And uh, they, they all talk about it like parrots. And I'm not saying this in a, in a detrimental way. It's how it happens. But when you start testing the thinking and the, the actual believing in it, it starts to differ. 
So when you create that belief around it at top level, you have to create that belief right throughout the organization to the front end employee that they all actually believe the same thing. Sounds simple, but that's how it is. So our change process starts with that. It then involves the, the change of belief, thinking, and actions of the leadership group, right to supervisor level. Once you've done that, you also have to look at your the systems in your organization because you can have systems directed away from your, your intent. And uh, you have to then re-engineer your process in the organization. Once you've got those two in place, you then have behavioral adaptation happening to what that original intent shift was. And culture is then, in the end, culture is that behavioral shift that happens. You want to move away away from a place where people are scared to report stuff and to highlight risk the entire time and hide their numbers and fudge them to a place where people feel completely open about being able to raise risks and look after each other as they generally care about each other. And, and that's one aspect of that culture is the and James Reason actually defined it like that, calling it you know a reporting culture, but you also must have a just culture. And that just refers to the systems. You have to have systems that support that reporting. If people are being blamed for accidents, they're not going to report them. It's a very simple equation. So your disciplinary process, your consequence management must be in tune with that objective to have a reporting culture. But then a series of things have to happen after that. You have to have a flexible culture too. A mistake can be interpreted in so many ways. You have to have that understanding in the organization and adapt to that. And then finally, you must have a learning culture where the organization can learn from these information flows that they get, the people talking about this. That is the final piece in the whole cultural shift. So you now run a very successful consulting business. You've gone through all of this whole journey in your life. And I'm interested to know, so how much of your current success is related to hard work or was it related to the people that you knew in the business or how much of it was luck, like being in the right place at the right time? I think almost all three of those. It is incredibly hard work. It consumes your life. But if you enjoy what you're doing, if you love what you're doing, that's fine. A lot of our success came from people talking about us to the next person. We hardly do any advertising. We always operated from one person, one manager, one complex, one entity talking to another, and then we've been approached like that. And that has happened a lot. And then there was many occasions where we were just at the right place at the right time. At the same time, we were also sometimes at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, where we've uh, been engaged by an organization, and I won't name the company, but the company, at one point, we did a lot of work for them, and we became very concerned about the quality of a specific manager in that company and the effect that this manager had on that organization. And uh, we pulled out of this consulting agreement with them. And three, four months later, they had a disaster. If we were still the consultants to that organization at that time, we would have been toast. And there was no logical decision-making on our side. It was just a matter of gut feeling. This is not right. We can't continue with this. So that's the kind of thing that you can also happen to you. Okay, that's interesting. So is there any other sort of case studies or stories you can share around maybe the biggest change that you saw in a culture where it went from being a very poor culture to 
something that you really could be proud about? Yes, and they still are clients at the moment. I won't name them. It's a large utility in, in, the, in the United States. And um, they had a, a strong, positive employee group. You know, they were very positive about management, but they had an incredibly strong focus on target zero. That was their slogan. And it drove all these wrong behaviors, as we discussed, in a very negative way. And the numbers looked very good. And then we did this culture analysis, and we were able to show to them that people are not willing to report anymore. And then it became very evident. We found evidence of people who injured themselves quite seriously, but they wouldn't report because it upsets the, the target zero. And that organization really took on board and they shifted their whole focus. And probably this is now two, three years down the track. And that organization is a huge organization, like 30,000 people. That's the most dramatic shift I've seen in any organization ever such a large organization in such a short space of time where they are now driving progressively at safety. They've installed progressive risk identification systems. It's a real joy to see how this organization has changed for the better. Even though, I must say, they were good already, yes. but now it's getting even better. So is there any material or books or papers that you would recommend for people to read about this topic? I would strongly recommend uh, the work of Eric Holnagel. A colleague of mine, a person that I work very closely with, is Todd Conklin. I would recommend his books. He's written a couple of books. Uh, he's doing a podcast as well. You know, very um, open-minded uh, kind of thinking on safety comes through his podcast. Actually, I'm a firm believer in reading books outside safety. So I love to read books about economics and, you know, like the one I mentioned, Anti-Fragile or books in, in, in different fields. One of the biggest shifts in my thinking came from reading the work of Bjorn Lomborg, and his book is called The Skeptical Environmentalist. And if you read something like that, you know, it, and you apply that into the world of safety management or risk management, it opens up so much more possibilities than reading more books about safety and more books about the same stuff all the time. Sidney Decker also wrote a number of books on this topic. I'm also a firm believer in having a very broad reading base because it just opens your mind to a lot of different possibilities. So in preparing for this podcast, what message did you come up with, something that you really feel people should know? One of the things that concerned me is the diversion or the different directions that safety management is taking organizations. And here's the bottom line issue. If an organization wants to survive into the future and be productive and effective in the future, the one thing we must be able to embrace is change and innovation. Both of those things are the enemies of safety management and the enemies of the safety profession. So we as a safety profession really have to come to grips with change management, change engineering, how to create change in the organization for the better. But we also must understand that at the heart of innovation, lies experimentation, people taking risks, breaking rules in order to see what can work better. So in a way, we're killing the business by telling people, you don't deviate from this standard operating procedure, you just do what you're told, that's the safe way of doing it. The safe way of doing it is the safe way of doing it, but it's not necessarily the only way of doing it. If we can start getting that kind of concept into people's minds, understanding that we can engineer from within and drive change and innovation from within the organization, that has to reach safety still. It hasn't got to the safety profession yet. 
I think if we had to listen to the guys who are actually exposed to the work, they would come up with lots of ideas on how to make their work safer and more practical. If we trust them, if we authorize them, and if we don't blame them for error, that makes a difference. And if, if we can't do that, we're not going to get them to come forward with that kind of uh, thinking. Mm. So where can people find out more about you and your business? Probably from our website, like most organizations. But, you know, I prefer companies or people to find out about us from our clients and talk to our clients. You know, that's the, that's the real measure. So we always have an open invitation to people who approach us and say, well, you know, how do you know this is working? We have a bold challenge to many times about this. We say, well, pick up the phone, phone a client and ask to speak to anybody who's been to our training courses, for instance, and ask them. And if they give you the right answer, then you should trust us. Just for reference sake, your website name is? Safemap.com. Okay, great stuff. Corey, it's been wonderful having you in the studio with me. Thank you very much for making your time available. Pleasure I've had. I've had lots of fun myself. Thank you. Thank you again to my guest, Cory Pitzer from SafeMap International. Thanks to Heath Ardbitson for his track Maze of the album Vloggerpites, which is used at the beginning and the end of this podcast. You've been listening to another Solid Gold podcast. For show notes and more information on my guest, as well as past episodes, visit solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash unchange. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.